Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze. The one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers. Inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. The tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Hello, it's 420. Welcome to episode 16 of the Brown County Hour, celebrating Earth Day. Here's our lineup for the show. John Kay, Indian folklorist, our newest contributor and resident agripuncturist, Mike Buby, local musician, Forrest Grass, park naturalist, Jim Eagleman, master shroomer, Bird Snyder, rogue writer, Dave Seastrom, poems from Jeff Tryon and Gunther Flum, an interview with eclectic sculptor, Jim Connor, and an update on the Brown County Playhouse from Doug Harden. Hello, I'm John Kay. I grew up in Brown County, just down past Stonehead and up Christiansburg Road a little piece. I now work at Indiana University, where I direct Traditional Arts Indiana, and I thought for the Brown County Hour we could have a little Hoosier literature lesson. In 1906, Ken Hubbard, a journalist and cartoonist, pulled together several of his writings to publish the book titled Abe Martin of Brown County. Hubbard had started a syndicated column about the Brown County Sage in 1904 and thought a book of his witty sayings and rural caricatures would help secure his name as a Hoosier author and humorist. He turned to his friend and fellow Hoosier author, Meredith Nicholson, to pen the introductory remarks to this collection. I thought it'd be good to see what Meredith Nicholson had to say about Hubbard in his character, Abe Martin of Brown County. Introductory Persons who have tried all known patent medicines without relief will do well to try these Abe Martin dandelion and sassafras cocktails before turning their faces to the wall. Abe is now an established institution, and no supper table is complete without him. The clods are softer under the weary hoof, and the plow handles easier to manage after a moment's communion with Abe. He is Plato on the cracker barrel, a radiant Socrates after Xantippe's departure to visit her own folks in Tecumseh Township. A cartoon and two sentences are sufficient for Mr. Hubbard's purposes, and no one since A. Ward has shown the same genius for mirth-provoking epigram. Abe's friends are as classic as Abe's whiskers. And those of us that have stayed all night at the grand hotel of some budding town that hopes to have a street fair and a tin-wagon circus next year, we know that Constable Newt Plum, Tipton Bud, Niles Turner, Pinky Kerr, Tilford Moots, the Miss Fawn Lippincutt, and Tawny Apple are veritable figures snatched bodily from the rural landscape. And Mr. Hubbard is a direct descendant of the well-known Hubbard family, whose dog got no bone from that historic cupboard. Toothpicks from this cupboard are now sold for $2 apiece at the Museum of Fine Art in Chillicothe, Ohio. 
In fifteen years of acquaintance, I've never known Mr. Hubbard to be serious but once. And that was when he described Bell Fountain as a place that the expectant pilgrim could always identify by two sparrows on the south end of the water tank near the Big Four station. I've passed that tank twenty-seven times since, and have found Mr. Hubbard's statement accurate in every particular. It is therefore with a clear conscience that I give this symphony in Gingham a hearty endorsement. And if the author of it should be arrested for arson or safety blowing at any time when I myself am at large, I solemnly promise to be one of ten thousand men to put up a dime apiece to bail him out. Meredith Nicholson, Indianapolis, November 7th, 1906. That's the introductory remarks of Ken Hubbard's Abe Martin of Brown County, written by Indiana author Meredith Nicholson. I hope you enjoyed this little Hoosier literature lesson. And remember, until next time, the arts are for everyone, every day. Hello, folks. This is Mike Buby. And here are some goals for your gardening this year. Now, what might be your goal for having a garden? Fresh fruits and vegetables? Supplemental income? Or creating a colorful area of flowers to attract bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds? Or to provide an inner sense of connecting with nature? No matter what the reason, consider a few basic things. The climate or growing season for your area the size and situation you are dealing with to create this garden, and, of course, the condition of the soil. Living organisms, such as plants, thrive to survive and will have a better chance of doing so if they are in an acceptable environment. You, as a gardener, can provide that. Know your dirt. Good or bad soil structure can be found in any soil type. Let's start with soil acidity. Soil acidity is a reflection of the rock material from which it was derived. Applying lime to the soil can reduce its acidity. Simple kits are available for doing a home soil test, or you can contact your county extension agent for help with this. Remember, acid soils turn litmus paper red. Next, consider with that with sandy soils, the sand particles are large and create ample pore spaces. But because there are no small pores, this soil type drains and dries quickly and does not provide a water-holding basis for the plants. To improve the soil's moisture-holding capability, one can add organic material. Organic material such as farmyard manure, garden compost, straw, and peat is a better soil conditioner than sand. But unlike the lasting effect of sand, Organic material eventually decays and should be supplemented to the soil as needed. Naturally, achieving good soil structure can be accomplished in soil that is well-drained by the root growth of plants. On a side note, continually harvesting or removing plant material from a garden leads to a gradual deterioration of the soil. Next, let's talk about fertilizers. General fertilizers provide three major nutrients nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash. In the correct combination, they can improve the overall fertility of the soil. Nitrogen is among the most important, yet the scarcest of plant nutrients. Nitrogen is necessary for the production of protein within the plant. It can come from the breakdown and decay of dead plants and animals and animal waste. 
Some plants, especially the legumes, can remove nitrogen from the air and store in their root nodules. Air itself is made up of approximately 80% nitrogen. Believe it or not, plants benefit more from the rain of a thunderstorm than from a normal rain shower. That's because during the thunderstorm in which lightning occurs, the electrical discharge ionizes the nitrogen molecules in the air and they become oxides of nitrogen. These bond with the raindrops and they are carried to the ground where they can be absorbed by the plants. Nitrogen, a vital part of green chlorophyll and plant growth. Next on phosphorus. Phosphorus is important in root development and growth and in bud development on plants. Acidic soils are most generally lacking in sufficient phosphorus amounts. Finally, potash. Potash works with equalizing the enhanced leafy growth caused by nitrogen. It is also important for both the production of the fruits and flowers of the plants. Artificial fertilizer should be used only with manure that is seasoned or well-rotted. Otherwise, the ammonia that is released can burn the roots and lower leaves of the plants. So, folks, remember, gardening can be approached in many ways. By making considerations before physical activity within the garden begins, being a gardener can be a rewarding experience both physically and mentally. Work with nature. Plan your garden and provide for the needs of your plants, and then enjoy the fruits of your labor as the garden, in turn, provides for your needs. This is Mike Buby with Garden Tips Today. Here is Rick Fettig interviewing my old friend Forrest Grass. I first met Forrest when I was his school bus driver, and he was 13 years old. He introduced himself as Forrest Greenleaf Grass, and damn proud of it. I put a star next to his name, and he is still a star. Welcome, Forrest. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. It's good to see you. I think the uh, you reminded me, but I felt like I've known you forever, and you reminded me that the f- first time we met was on the uh, album cover shoot for Mellencamp's Scarecrow album. Oh, yeah, they shot that on a friend of mine's farm. I was uh, 14. That was a memorable time, and I remember John said, uh, forget all about that macho tish and learn how to play guitar. Anyway, you're a local musician. We're playing your songs on this show. Um, what got you started in music, and were you just interested from the early age, or something spur your attention, or what? What? How how'd you get into music? Well, my family moved here from California when I was three, and mom and dad were particularly drawn to the area because of Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Festival and folks like Bob Lucas and out at Nemour and. Um, and then, uh, you know, there was always picking going on around the house, so I just picked it up. Then I got into blues and rock and roll uh, my, in my high school years, you know, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, then in my mid-late 20s, I went down to Nicaragua, to the Bloomington City, Pulsoltega, sister city, and got involved in that project and fell in love with Latin American culture and traveling around that country and I spent several years back and forth all around Central America and Mexico traveling and discovered a lot of beautiful Latin folk tunes, rock and espanol and uh, I was always into Santana and so came back and managed to get this um, salsa Latin rock band together called Alma Azul 
and did that project for about five years. I've always been into the blues. My uncle Honeybee uh, turned me on to the blues um, when I worked for his oldies music company, the Golden Melody, years ago. At that point, um, you know, I got real into writing my own songs, put together a original rock album and band called the Forest Grass Band and released my first album called On the Red Road, which the Red Road means to live close to the earth. I'd been doing sweat lodges since I was 13 years old with a Native American Lakota, Kenny Kane.
I'm Tramp Star. You probably don't know much about me, except if you know about a fella named Carl Wilson, a goat farmer, boxer, and all-around swell guy. Good friend of mine. Well, back in the day, old Carl Wilson used to write up some stuff about the country life such as we used to live here in Brown County, and he'd send it in along with one of my poems up to the Indianapolis Star newspaper, and it would run in the Sunday edition right beside of Frank Hohenberger's Sunday column, Down in the Hills of Brown. I reckon Carl got paid some little something on the whole deal, but I never did see one penny of that money. Carl would publish my stuff under the title Jokes and Jingles from Curly Shingles by Tramp Star. Curly Shingles was the name that he had given his little old cabin. The shingles had all kind of curled up on him. Tramp Star is, well, that's me. City boy. He never knew the fullest joy of spring. The feel of velvet grasses or the cool that new-turned earth to eager feet could bring when April gave release from shoes and school. He never knew a wild strawberry bed, so lavish with its fruit, his careless feet and lips alike, both bore the melting red and luscious glory of their dripping sweet. He never knew the scent of new-mown hay, of flowering meadows tangled in the gloom of friendly barns, or joined there in the play of comrades on a rainy afternoon. He never clubbed persimmon trees or rode a tough and slender hickory to the ground or parted glowing leaves that hoarfrost sowed upon the last gold pawpaw to be found. He never tracked a rabbit in new snow or treed one possum in a hollow log or tamed a single wild thing, squirrel or crow, or lived, as country boys live, with a dog. He never owned a pig or colt or calf and maybe not one living thing at all and never had as big a thrill by half as finding newborn puppies in a stall. He never had a chance to love the land, the calm of trees, the quiet of a hill. He never heard the whisper close at hand in country places saying, Peace, be still. He only knew the city streets and ways and city-fashioned artificial joy. He missed and missed forever country days designed by our wise God for every boy. We'll be right back after station identification. Welcome back to the Brown County Hour. Hello, and welcome to another segment of Nature News. This is Jim Eagleman, naturalist at Brown County State Park. 
On this particular segment, I'd like to plug the um, 28th annual Spring Wildflower Foray scheduled this year for April 26th, 27th, and 28th. Planners uh, ask you to experience the sights and sounds of spring in the forests of southern Indiana. This has been the 28th year of discovering spring blossoms in Brown County and beyond. The Foray's founders hit on a witting combination, they say, by pairing enjoyable hikes and programs with the serious work of collecting wildflower data. In the data, helps botanists and regional land managers understand the changes that are coming across the Brown County landscape in the 28 years of keeping data when blooms of these first ephemerals start occurring. We've noticed over the years that those dates are a little bit earlier than normal, as you expect. Uh, Things are becoming more active. Birds are returning to their nesting areas from uh, southern climes. That's happening a little bit earlier. Blooms are occurring a little earlier as temperatures tend to warm. Pollinators that arrive or start getting active in the spring aren't able to pollinate the plants that they normally uh, look for. So these changes are quite natural. In this case, respond to an overall global change of warming. Botanists, biologists, and naturalists are uh, recording these and checking their data along with aspects like the 28th annual 4A. This helps uh, botanists here in Indiana understand the changes are coming. Over the three-day spring wildflower 4A, events start on April 26th, Friday at 1 p.m. at Selma Steel Nature Preserve. This is a T.C. Steel State Historic Site. There are hikes throughout the day on Friday. Activities continue then on Saturday. Lake Monroe Backwaters Tour with Rex Waters, the wildlife specialist at Monroe Reservoir. Pre-registration is required by calling the 988-2785 number. It then hikes throughout the day, ending with um, compilation of the day's data compiled by wildflower author Kay Yatskevich. She'll be the meeting with folks that evening at the Waycross Conference Center in northern Brown County, in a new place for the uh, 4A supper to take place this year. It is online, but can be gotten also at the TC Steel site at 988-2785. Sunday events begin at 9 a.m. with a wildflower yoga, and activities uh, then conclude at 1 p.m. on Sunday. So keep those dates in mind, April 26, 27, and 28, 28th annual Spring Wildflower Foray. One week later, on, on May 4th, will be the Friends of Brown County State Park annual Morel Mushroom Festival. There will be a sale at 1 p.m. on Saturday, May 4, at the Nature Center. If you're not too lucky in finding Morel Mushrooms... The Friends Group makes available for sale a nice assortment of morel mushrooms. So quite a lot of activities going on for interpretive programs at Brown County State Park Nature Center. Uh, those schedules are online at www.interpretiveservices.in.gov and click on Brown County for the Brown County State Park nature programs that continue all through the summer. And this is Jim Eagleman, the naturalist at Brown County State Park, signing off, hoping everybody has a great spring. Forest grass. Uh, Well, you recently spent some time in Memphis, didn't you? Yeah. um, After I released On the Red Road, I uh, really wanted to get into um, Bottleneck Slide, Delta Blues, and... uh, Memphis has an incredible scene. Beale Street is a place where you can go and sit in with bands uh, very easily. They're really welcoming about that and, uh, you know, find gigs and start playing. And I went back and forth for three years down in Memphis and 
probably paid, played about 300 gigs during that time. Um, went down there with uh, some guys for a while from here also playing, and a singer, uh, Keiko Konate, she was on my second album. Uh, she sings on that Going to Memphis song, and uh, released that album, which was recorded up here, but released it once I was down there, and my last year I was down there, I recorded a new album, which is finally ready to come out of the can. It's um, called River City Blues, and I recorded it with Albert King's old rhythm section, I'm oh, wow. proud to say. It was recorded in Memphis uh, at, with Brad Webb and his studio. It's an album of blues standards done my style.
Hello, this is Dave Seesterman. It's my privilege to interview Bird Snyder, well-renowned mushroom hunter, uh, banjo picker in the White Lightning Boys, and well-known carpenter in Brown County. Hey, Bird, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm, I'm doing good. So glad you could show up for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, I know that there's a lot of mystery involved in hunting mushrooms. And, you know, for those of us that go out for hours and hours and get very little, compared to someone like you, who is a legend, is there any truth to the rumor that you harvested and sold many, many pounds of mushrooms last year? I sold 84 pounds. Oh, my God. <laughs> and gave away maybe 30 or 40. Huh. Uh, can I get on that list? Or? Yeah, you can. <laughs> 84 pounds? Yeah. Lord. So, uh, got any like insider tips for those of us that like to you know do a little better as we get out there? Well, you know, early in the year, you want to start on the north, northeast-facing hillsides, preferably hunting ash trees. And you want to start looking at the base of saplings, anywhere that the leaves create like a small greenhouse, maybe a log laying on the ground. The leaves have kind of rolled up against it, and there's that little air cavity where the sun heats that ground first. And anything that's basically 90 degrees, you know, that catches the sun, that'll be the first place you'll find them. And those are the warmest areas where the leaf covers the thinnest. Are you one of those people that believes in hunting mushrooms by walking up the hill? or? Yeah, especially the black mushrooms early in the year, for uh-huh. sure. An ash tree, a lot of times, its root will start surfacing if it puts up black mushrooms. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I believe, in my experience, that if a tree doesn't have shallow roots, it, it won't put up mushrooms. Of all of them, yellows are your favorite? or? Yeah, really, I don't eat them too much. <laughs> Uh, so how many would you find if you did like to eat them i don't know mercy Uh, so when you get ready to go out do you have anything that you do i mean you have some like mental preparation to get those mushroom eyes on or no you know i've had the same reoccurring dream since i've been a kid the mushroom dream Uh, it's the same dream every year i haven't had it yet this year once I have that dream, it's pretty much all I can think about. So you don't go out and sniff the air or kick around and see if the mayapples are up or anything? You wait for that dream? Well, no, I go out early. I've been out. I found some three weeks ago before that snow, but yeah. they were really small. I found them and left them uh, for seven weeks before they've matured. You know, a lot of people say, well, they grow really it. fast. and Well, there's legends that, like, in a day they'll pop out of the ground and... But they're there, like on a good year, I've removed leaves before. I mean, I'm talking in an area three times the size of this room, every leaf. But we wasn't getting the rain when we needed it. Instead of raining every three to four days, we were lucky if we could get one a week. As far as I know, you know, they grow in the top two inches of the soil. Well, that's the first thing to dry out with the sun. I think actually on dry years, they're there. You just got to find find those moist areas that didn't dry out so fast so when you find your first mushroom or a group of them are you the kind of fellow i mean do you sit down and then just start scoping out or walking in concentric circles or early in the year the first thing i'll do if it's on an elm tree or an ash tree early in the year the first thing i'll do when i find a mushroom is i look at the base of that tree and try to figure where that root's going by the you know where the tree flares out on the bottom 
and then I'll hunt down those roots. Because places I find my early mushrooms, the tree roots will surface and then go back under the ground and they'll surface and go back under the ground. I'll find those mushrooms within two foot of that tree root. Wherever it surfaces, you know, you can kind of see with the way it's running by where it surfaced. And then it'll come up a little further down the hill. I die an elm. When I come up to an elm tree and I find a mushroom, sometimes they'll grow really close to the tree. And sometimes they'll grow 40 yards from the tree, way out on the tip of the roots, depending on how dead that tree is. You know, sometimes if it's still got a little life in it, you'll find them way, way out from the tree. And most people miss those. But not you. (laughs) Well, like you can go in on state property and still find mushrooms where there's been pretty well picked over because people don't hunt that wide. So, all right, what weapon do you use? I mean, you're mushroom hunting... 410, pitchfork, what do you prefer? Uh, I use rocks on on my mushrooms and my trout. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So do you have any advice for somebody that's never been out before? I would get with someone to learn my trees first off. And you need to know. You need to be able to tell an ash from. You need to know poplar, ash, sassafras, dogwood. Red elm, white elm. Now, you're listing all these trees. Sycamore. They're all the trees in our forest. You're not saying you find mushrooms at every single one of them. Every one of them. Apple trees. Once you learn your trees, you know, you'll learn, you'll be able to identify your trees better by looking at the tops, or I can, uh, from a distance than looking, you know, through the woods at eye level i'm a patch hunter so i won't spend a lot of time looking for six mushrooms i mean i cover a lot of ground and spend the majority of my time with my head up looking at the tops of the trees i know where a lot of places are that grow mushrooms but it's just from covering as much ground as i can possibly cover usually i'll take off work for three weeks and from the time it gets daylight till it gets dark, I'm mushroom hunting. There was a time where I, I had rode my mountain bike in and left my mountain bike. Thought, well, you know, I've been up to the head of this holler before, and it can be really good. There's some big elm in there, but I'm not going. And then I thought, well, hell, I've got my flashlight. I'm going to go ahead and go. So I take off, and I go up there. There's this huge white elm tree, and the bark's peeling on it. And I thought, man, if there's if that's all mushroom, there's no way. You could see, like... You could see the haze of in the head of that hollow. There was nineteen and a half pounds. Oh my god! Under one white elm tree. Wow! So this is like a and, pinnacle moment for you in mushroom hunting, right? Well, Ryan Reichert, a guy that hunts with me a lot, we hit a tree like that last year that had seventeen pounds under it. Wow! Wow! They were everywhere. Mercy. We picked for three hours on one tree. I mean, they were everywhere. <laughs> But, you know, it's it's about covering ground. You know, those trees are few and far between. Those two trees are the best two trees I've ever found in my life. You've certainly told some inspiring tales of mushroom hunting, and I really appreciate your coming in with this. Can you think of something, something inspiring or something that you'd say to somebody that's thought about mushroom hunting and has never really motivated itself to get out there and do it? or? Give me a call, and I'll sell you some. Ah! <laughs> That's right. Well, Bert, thank you very much for coming in, man. Hey, thank really you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And this is Dave Seastrom from the Brown County Hour. See you next time.
We'll be right back after station identification. Welcome back to the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour for WFHB. And I have in the studio today Jim Connors. He's one of our best metal sculptors. And what is it that you have been best known for, Jim? <laughs> no, I just I work in different mediums of art. You know, I'll try anything. I, I primarily like stone and steel. But I have painted and I've used wood. And as far as the best known, I don't know. I mean, I guess the best known thing that I have locally that people, most people have seen is the license plate palm tree that stands out in front of Muddy Boots is probably the most seen piece in Brown County. I've seen that, and it's spectacular. What brought it to mind for you? What was your inspiration? Part of it was, it, it's kind of got a, a little hidden meaning to it that most people don't catch. And with our climate getting warmer all the time, um, I thought that, you know, at some point we may have palm trees here in Brown County or cause of some of the climate change, you know, according to scientists, is our own burning of fossil fuels. And automobiles add a huge percentage of CO2 to the atmosphere. So I thought, well, with license plates, that's kind of like the car is what would make the palm trees. And so when I put the palm, the license plates on, if we do end up with that warm, a a lot of it would have been caused by automobiles. So that's the tie-in. And you're using recycled materials. Uh, Yeah, I try to use as many recycled materials as I possibly can on projects. Depends. If I get a commission that somebody wants a specific thing that I can't use recycled stuff, I sometimes have to buy. But a lot of the things that I just buy and put out for sale, or I I try to use recycled metal from the scrapyard or stone from the quarries and things that would typically just be thrown away or melted down. I think it's a better use of energy just to, to take the things right from the source instead of having to go through in the whole process again. And then tell me, what is your formal training for this very physical art? I grew up in a construction family. My whole family was steel workers, iron workers, and my father was an iron worker and my uncles and cousins. So I traveled about a good bit across the country erecting bridges and high-rise buildings. And But I always did artwork. My mother was an artist, and so I got a little bit of both sides. I, I got the really mechanical aspect of things, but I also had the, uh, what you call the artist dream, you know, to, to, to make things. I... I did artwork started artwork at a very young age i my father taught me to weld at age nine so i was always welding and in my later years i just decided to do uh, art full time i figured i'd built enough bridges and and enough things it was time to just do some artwork 
Jim, earlier you mentioned some of the materials you work in. How do you acquire them? Well, I I take trips to um, different scrapyards over in Columbus and in Bloomington, you know, to look look for different, you know, things that I think might might work out for a project. And so at home, I have sometimes I I collect more things than I can use. You know, I call it my pile of unused inspiration. That kind of some people would look as a junk pile, but it's my art pile. And once in a while, I'll drag a piece out. And the stone, I go to the quarry, or, or sometimes I find a piece laying in the creek that I think looks nice, and I'll, I'll take that and use that also. When it comes to inspiration, what do you attribute the presence of living in Brown County has done for you? It's not just one thing, but it, it's, it's several things. It's the, you know, the beauty of the surrounding landscape, and then the other thing is the energy from all the creative people that live here between... Uh, other artists that that are friends of mine and musicians and poetry writers and um, this is really like an inspiration a very special place for artists and creative people i've traveled and lived in several different places around the country and truly never felt at home until i hit brown county about 15 years ago it's just an amazing amazing place for uh, creative type people earlier i heard you mention the art therapy program that you're involved with could you elaborate on that for us? It's a program that a friend of mine and I came up with together. And uh, he's a combat veteran from the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan wars. And and he's come out to my place and worked on uh, some projects with me. And he talked about how it help, you know it helps him to take his mind off of you know some of the trauma f- uh, from war. So we got to talking and thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we can figure out a way to build a retreat, do artwork with veterans that might like to do some art pieces. So we're, we formed a 501c3 non-for-profit. My friend, he's got that established, and we're working on a place to put some art, you know, put some veterans to where they can work on art, and then they would actually be paid for the art pieces. Plus, it would help them to, to acclimate back into the community, and it would also give the community a chance to meet some of their veterans. So it's, it's just a, it's an idea that we have, and we thought it could do some some good so you know we're going to try it and see what happens we want to do the pilot program here because because of the art community in brown county we're going to do it we're going to be kicking off a program and not too f- far in the future and we'll it'll it'll be a probably a public art piece here for brown county and there'll be we have four combat veterans who've already signed up to say that they will help work on the art piece so it's it's pretty exciting you know that, that we've got these guys that really want to help and do things with the community and hopefully the community will support these guys too you know and um, the name of the organization if you see it around it's called elder heart it's going to be an art sculptural kind of an art thing for uh, for veterans for any veterans from any war and it's also for people in the community that want to come out and help too so we're going to kick it off and see what happens you know and jim's website is jamesconnorart.wordpress.com and that is connor c-o-n-n-o-r this is vera grubbs speaking with my guest jim connor for the brown county hour i'm pam raider with brown county hour I'm here with Doug Harden, consummate volunteer at the theater. Hi, Doug. It's great to talk to you. Hey, Pam. How are you? 
Yeah, a lot of, lots coming up at the theater, lots going on. We're in the middle of right now doing some electrical renovations, uh, the electrical being brought in for the new movie equipment. That's really exciting. And, you know, you're going to have a 22-foot wide screen, surround sounds. You'll get pretty much the same uh, kind of experience you'd get at the movie houses. Uh, the movies will be current uh, within three weeks of their premiere. And when do you expect the movies to start? By the first part of May. You know, last year we did over 70 different events. This year we're probably going to be pushing a hundred. It's certainly taxing the volunteers and we've got a wonderful group of volunteers. Uh, our board alone is seven. Mm-hmm. And then we also ask for volunteers to help us with ushering. And also we've got people that come in that are more than a volunteer, considered a member so that they can do the serving at the bar. And, you know, any big night, there will probably be as many as four or five ushers, uh, mm-hmm. two or three people at the bar, plus our group. So it takes a real community effort to do this. Well, and this is a community-owned it, resource. It, it absolutely so. is. It, and that's the wonderful thing about it, is the fact that it is owned by the community. Mm-hmm. It's not someone making a profit honestly uh if you would count up all the hours that the just the seven of us spent in a year's time we couldn't afford that kind mm-hmm. of stuff well i know i saw a lot of good shows there yeah i hope so and it was so wonderful to be able to just walk up to the local box office and see first-rate entertainment yeah i mean there were entertainers brought in from outside brown mm-hmm. county it isn't just absolutely. amateur theater no absolutely in fact you know we just uh, a week or so ago a few weeks ago had the Mellon Cougar Band, which was a sold-out concert, and we were definitely running the sound system on 11. But we've got some stuff coming up in May of, of uh, national and regional type acts that I think people have heard of before. Just to very quickly kind of hit the highlights of this, starting uh, probably the weekend this show will air for you, we're doing Community uh, Reader, Reader's Theory, which is a Nora Ephron play, and we have local actresses doing it. It's a play called Love, Loss, and What I Wore, and it's very it's a great play around Mother's Day. On Saturday, April twenty seventh, we got Tad Robinson, who's a blues act. We have The Late Show with Rick Clayton. If you ever listen to WFBQ, Bob and Tom in Indianapolis, you've heard of Rick Clayton. And you definitely will have heard of this next guy, which we have a comedian coming in on Friday, May 17th, Haywood Banks. Mm-hmm. I've just, heard of him. He's got some of the most off-kilter comedy. It's just great. And he sings and, and tells his stories. And So last year you had the guitar pickers. We uh, did. That, that was a national real, contest. Real exciting. Uh, Chuck Wills and Kara Barner put this together. And Kara is yes. To a lot of these concert tests and things, and the the national contest draws like twenty five thousand people. She, for the first time ever, was able to put together an off site contest here in Nashville uh, that was sanctioned by the Nationals. Which, in fact, the winner of that got to be automatically entered in and actually entered at a level to where he didn't have to go through some of the early rounds. The local concert here was the talk of the town out there. I love the it. They, they, they were really <laughs> talking it up and how neat it was that they had these feeder contests. And, of course, just at the Brown County Music Awards show, uh, we had Kate Puckett, who I think placed in that. And it's just nuts the amount of talent that showed up. The thing we love about it, the reason we did the Brown County Music Awards show, was that a lot of these people are pretty local. 
Mm-hmm. And it's amazing the, the talent that lives in these Thyre Woods. On May 18th, the following day after the Haywood Bank Show, we've got Tim Grimm from Columbus bringing in what he does. He assembles a lot of different musicians together in kind of an ensemble. And this year, they, they're doing a tribute to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which is one of my favorite bands growing up. The last uh, show in May we'll mention is on Saturday, May 25th. There's a songwriter workshop, and we're also Jenny DeVoe, who's an incredible musician out of Indianapolis, is coming down. She's going to be part of the workshop and do a concert that night. If people want to go to a website, browncountyplayhouse.org. Well, Doug, thanks a lot. I hope we can interview you or hear more about the Playhouse every episode of our (laughs) show. Yeah, and stay tuned to our website Uh or uh, obviously the Facebook pages. Can't complain there's nothing to do in Brown County. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Forest grass. Well, growing up in Brown County is a great thing. It's a great place. Beautiful country and woods. Uh, I live out near Yellowwood. I do live in a yurt. It's a 30-foot diameter. I call it a perma-yurt, actually, because it's you know got some conventional framing, doors and windows, plumbing and running water and electricity. It's a beautiful round space that's 30 foot in diameter with a big skylight cupola in the center that I built out on some land of my mom's in Brown County, and it's paid for. Some of the best music is made right on the back porch. Yeah, Yeah, I was lucky enough to meet Ron Volbrecht in my late teens, and He's been a great mentor, um, not only how to you know maintain my instruments, uh, but just how to play. Well, Forrest, it's been great, and uh, we hope you have have you back sometime. And well, thanks so much, Rick, and uh, we'll have to get together and play ourselves here sometime soon. All right, we'll do it. Thanks. All right, ciao. Happy Earth Day, Mom, from Gunther Flum. 
I have finally had enough of all the different kinds of stuff that humans let get in the way of all the things we need to say to make the earth a better place for our entire human race. Now, we're supposed to be so wise, but look at us through critters' eyes and think about how they might feel about the things that we think real, when really where we're looking from, the human race looks mighty dumb. There's not a creature on this earth, except for one, for what it's worth, that doesn't know that where they roam is where they live and build their home and raise their children best they can, both in the water and on the land. But humans, to their own disgrace, from every size to every race, do not seem to have a clue on how to act or what to do when other creatures don't think twice that Earth's our only paradise. Ask any tree or any flower if they'd like to spend one hour with their bounty and their yield in some human battlefield, giving cheers and many thanks for being plowed by bombs and tanks. There's not a fish in any ocean that ever had the slightest notion they should build a fishing fleet, go on land and then deplete everywhere they think they can every race of every man. And you can look, but I feel sure there's not a creature clad in fur that live in places so remote they need a human for a coat or make a human their main dish like we do poultry, cows, and fish. So on this Earth Day, do rejoice that all us humans have a choice on how we want to make our life full of fun and free of strife by using love, respect, and grace that as we float in outer space, we exhibit like no other on a planet we all call Mother. Happy birthday, Mom. The celebration of Earth Day speaks directly to us all. She's not only our home, but she's the very source of life itself. And in the most fundamental way possible, cliche or not, every day is Earth Day. To many of us, Brown County is Mother Earth. The hills and the valleys are warm and embracing, and somehow, just by living here, we are held in the arms of our mother each and every day. Many of us were drawn here by the idea of homesteading a patch of ground and making lives with our own hands. Back to the land is a timeless idea that offers a peaceful alternative to the rat race and is a way to be closer to the rhythms and cycles that define a natural existence. There are many ways to embrace the earth. For some, a day on one of our lakes is a slice of heaven. For others, a walk in the woods is as close to home as it gets. All of us, whether we live in a big city or here in Brown County, have some special place where we feel most at home. Personally, I find my direct connection by growing a garden. It wasn't so long ago that a good garden was the difference between starvation and prosperity. Before the arrival of grocery stores, it would have been hard to imagine a Brown County family without some kind of garden. Because not just anyone is cut out to be a gardener, there were undoubtedly folks who traded their skills and goods for food. So it was good news when the grocery wagons evolved and food delivery became available. For the first time, dependence on growing your own was no longer absolute. Today, 21st century Brown County has most of the things you can find in the big cities, so we don't have to grow a garden. Just like everywhere else, we do it because we want to. Brown County is not known for her fertile land, and we can only dream of the deep, dark, glaciated soils our fellow Hoosiers enjoy to the north of us. But if you add enough compost and keep after it, even our rocky clay will produce enough to get you through for a long winter. It's during the cold of winter that most gardens are born. The plant and seed catalogs start arriving around Christmas, fertilizing the dreams and aspirations of all who have ever taken up the hoe. 
The inspirational photo showing ripe and delicious produce, combined with beautiful weed-free flower beds abounding in the glorious colors of spring, reach out and grab our imaginations and have caused many a questionable purchase. As the would-be gardener says to himself, why not give this one a try? The distinguishing characteristic of most gardeners is optimism. No one plants a garden that does not believe they will literally see the fruits of their labors. No, each garden is planted with the hopeful understanding that this will be the best year yet. And sometimes that's even true. What's almost always true is that something will be the best. Whether it's the marigolds, or the brandy wines, or the sugar snaps. Gardening is just as popular now as it was in settlement days. And just about everywhere you go, someone's growing something. Summer nights are often filled with the aroma of flowering plants as the procession of blooms marches onward towards fall. All of us have a few favorite gardens that we see as we go from here to there. Tucked into the hills or sprawling out into the valley. There's one on Helmsburg Road that I've been admiring for years now. Every time I drive past, I slow down and take a long look, hoping that I might see something that would improve my own garden. If the soil is unfriendly, the deer are downright predatory. These wily herbivores will literally eat you out of house and home. We have more deer now than before settlement, and this has become a real issue for anyone wishing to reap what they sow. Over the years, I've heard of many deer remedies, from bars of soap hung in the garden to exotic feline urine, scarecrows to tape predator calls. None of these things work for me. The only thing I know that works every time is a fence. And not just any fence. It has to be at least six feet tall and built stout enough to withstand deer attack. We don't let these things bother us. We soldier on just as our ancestors before us. And just as it was for them, there ain't nothing like a homegrown tomato. Living on the earth and glad to be here. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. County Hours produced entirely by volunteers. This episode's crew includes Rick Fettig, Jeff Foster, Vera Grubbs, Janice Pierce, Pam Rader, and Dave Seastrom. Managing producer, Pam Rader. Technical producer and webmaster, Jeff Foster. Executive producer, Allison Bektesh. And thanks, Slats Klug, for your wonderful music. To listen to this episode or any previous ones, visit browncountyhour.com or wfhb.org. We always welcome new volunteers. You can contact us and get more information on today's guests via our website, browncountyhour.com. Tune in June 21st for Brown County Hour Episode 17. Thanks for joining us and have a great evening. You've been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh